Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Katie Turr about her new memoir, Rough Draft, a candid account of her lived experience growing up the daughter of famous journalists and then charting her own path from local news to weather chaser to NBC national correspondent to anchoring her own show on MSNBC, Katie Turr Reports. Katie, welcome to That Said. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. So this was a wonderful read, and I'd like to know if you could tell us why you decided to write a memoir. Well, I don't know about you, but I um, was thrown for a loop in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, it's back when things were so crazy that I was literally washing a head of garlic with dish soap because I didn't know how you could get the virus and what the virus would do. And because people were losing their jobs and, and the economy looked like it was stalling and no one knew what was going to happen. Uh, I started to wonder what was going to happen with my job. And then I was starting to wonder what I wanted to happen with my job. Um, and I didn't have an answer. I thought, should I be doing this? Do I like doing this? Should I have done something else with my life? Why did I do this? And, um, I guess to answer that question, I had to go back to go forward. And I, and this was all prompted, Michael, by a big hard drive that my mom sent in the mail. It contained, um, and I should preface this with my parents are both, both helicopter journalists, but they were in Los Angeles in the eighties and nineties. And they shot iconic news footage that you have seen. They found OJ in the slow speed pursuit. That's their footage. My dad's voice. Um, they, they, shot the video of Reginald Denny being pulled from the gravel truck. They shot every police pursuit, every Malibu fire. I mean, this, if you thought of Los Angeles in the eighties and nineties, other than the Lakers, <laughs> you thought of my parents. Um, and so she sent me this hard drive and it contained all of their news footage, but it also contains just basically every home video my dad ever shot, but he just, he shot them on his news camera. And uh, I was hesitant to open it up and look at it. Because while it contained some great stuff, I knew it also had a lot of scary stuff. But it also contained the answer of who am I and where am I going? So I buckled up and I dove in. You write that this book wasn't supposed to happen, but it had to exist as the only possible reaction to a world gone mad. So can you talk a little bit about that? The world had gone mad. I mean, the pandemic was confusing and scary. Um, our politics was confusing and scary. Uh, we can't agree on life and death issues. We can't agree on whether the sky is blue. We can't agree on what is a lie. Um, and it, it felt like we were, it felt like our problems were intractable. And I worried that I was not helping things, but maybe wondering if I was making it worse as a journalist in the position that I'm in. And, you know, so when everything goes crazy, I don't know about you. I like to write things down to get my head in order. And that's what I did. So why did you choose rough draft as a title to your book? Because we all are just rough drafts of ourselves until we're six feet under and then we're the final draft. We're all just trying to figure it out. And also I'm a journalist and they say that um, journalism is the first draft of history, a rough draft of history, if you will. 
And so you're living this Socratic examined life, right? The unexamined <laughs> life is not worth living. It is not. So we, we did a deep examination here. We did. Myself so and I. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit. You just told us that your folks were in the business and they are famous for the founding of the LA News Service. I think someone once said of your folks that they essentially ruined news, making it sort of a celebrity-based reality show. But tell us a little bit about your mom. You say you would not be where you are without her influence on you. So my parents were a news team and they started a company called Los Angeles News Service uh, from scratch. They had nothing. There were two kids. Uh, My dad was 18. My mom was 23. Uh, At one point, very early on, my dad walked into a helicopter company and said, give me a helicopter. I'm going to cover news in Los Angeles like this. And here's my camera person, this this girl behind me at the time. Not very many women did that job, if not any. and they and they turned it into a real competitive force. And my dad gets all the credit for it because my dad was the one that was out front. Uh, it was my dad's voice that you heard. It was my dad that led all the coverage when people when People Magazine would come, or when a Japanese film crew would come, or when they were on Sally Jesse Raphael. My dad was the one that was front and center. It was always Bob Tur, Bob Tur, Bob Tur, and my mom didn't get as much credit because she was shyer. She wasn't as bombastic. And so she got left off of things like the Emmy for the Reginald Denny beating, which I thought sucks. And, you know, she, she, she was the driving force behind the business. I mean, she got, she literally shot all the video. She um, knew where to go. She listened to scanners day in and day out. She would sleep with a scanner in her ear and she knew that if the intonation on the dispatcher changed, that there was a story. I mean, she would wake up in the middle of the night just because the intonation would change on the scanner. She would just, it would just be natural to her. Um, you know, and, and as somebody who both my parents influenced me, my dad's bombastic attitude, his, his my way or the highway, his get it done attitude very much influenced me. My mom's, my mom's, strength through calm, her ability to detach herself from the drama and um, her steadiness behind the camera ended up giving me what I think is a more balanced mix (laughs) as a journalist. And, you know, I, I'm so pleased with it. She was a philosophy. She was an art major in college. She painted then she was a philosophy major and then she went to the news and I didn't even realize I was doing this until afterwards, but I was an art major and then a philosophy major. And then I went into news. So I'm my mother. Well, and your mother essentially was living out Connie, her mother's dream of doing something because her mother, because of circumstances of life, never got the chance to do what was her dream, which was my grandmother wanted adventure. She wanted to lead a fun, interesting life. She didn't want to get married. She didn't want to have kids, um, at least not anytime soon. And so she spent her younger years traveling the world, going to Cuba, going to Paris, going to Greece, going to, I think it's Nicaragua. She was, um, she worked in a a medical office and um, did blood analysis. I mean, this is in the thirties. Right. In the 40s. This is amazing. This woman was incredible. 
Um, and, you know, at 35, she had to settle down and she lost her career because at the time it wasn't really an option to do both. And my mom knew her not as a, you know, as a blood bank would be scientist, uh, a world traveler. She knew her as mom, mom who stayed home. And I think my mom wanted, wanted some excitement. And so when my dad came along, even though he was, um, a lot. <laughs> he had a he had a lot of energy and and he was um erratic. He was fun and he promised to give her a life of adventure. And so she she grabbed on and held on for quite a long time. You mentioned one thing a moment ago, but in the acknowledgments at the end of the book, I want to make emphasis of this because it's important. You say in the acknowledgments that your parents' coverage of the Reginald Denny beating during the Los Angeles riots won the Breaking News Emmy. But if you look at the citation, your mom's name has been left off, even though she was the one who hung out of the moving helicopter, even though she was the one who had the bullet hole in the camera battery, which was underneath her seat, because the network decided that the news director and the assignment editor, both men, needed to be on the award that had to make you as a up and coming journalist crazy when you saw that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I might've seen it when I was a kid, but it didn't register to me until I was older and I was doing this myself and, and it, it's just unjust. It's unfair and it's stupid. And it's just an indication of two things. One, the, the way women were treated, but also the way, and this is broader that, that camera people are treated in our business. Camera people are treated as if they're can sometimes be treated as if they are not editorial journalists themselves and they'll get left off of, of awards. And, and there's resentment there that builds up. And I understand it because holding a camera and deciding what to shoot is in many ways, just as much edit, as just as editorial um, as somebody like me who stands in front of the camera and explains what's going on. Yeah. Let's turn to your dad. You write of your dad that he was, the hero and the harm, loving and violent. And you had to deal with that growing up, but you also had to confront it as you begin to put together rough draft. So can you talk about your dad? Because he's an interesting person, to say the least. So my dad, um, and this is what I should do, a little disclaimer on pronouns. Um, my dad in 2013 called me and said, I am not Bob Turr. I'm Zoe Turr. Uh, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not a man. And, uh, so everything that I, that I talk about before then is he and everything that I, that I talk about after then is she. Uh, when I talk about my memory of my childhood and my father, I use, I use he for everything up to 2013. So, um, when I was growing up, my dad was heroic and he was exciting and he was, magnetic. Uh, somebody likened him to top crew, Tom Cruise in Top Gun. I mean, he was a maverick like that in the helicopter, a, a pilot that it seemed like he could do anything. And I was obsessed with him. I was, I was his best friend. I went everywhere. I was daddy's little girl. I wanted to be my dad. Uh, we'd go up in the helicopter and I would fly alongside of him. I would hold onto the joystick and fly a helicopter when I was just a little kid. We'd go to movies. He treated me like I was older than I was. 
And I love that about him. Um, but the downside to all of this, the other side of it was that he was really young. He had a really hard childhood himself. His dad would like cut part of his ear off at one point. Very violent. They would move in the middle of the night. They got evicted all the time. Um, and because he was so young when he had me and, and never dealt with his own childhood and was in this very stressful business, he had a lot of rage and a lot of anger. And that would come out toward my mother. It would come out toward my brother and I. Um, and it would be very scary. Punch holes in the walls. He'd throw batteries and keys at my mom. Um, he got, you know, violent at times with my brother and I, he was also just emotionally abusive because he would yell and scream. And so growing up, I, I don't think I understood how not normal that was. I thought that life was just a series of, it was like a a pinball game where you're just being batted around, uh, between good and bad. And when I got older, as I got to my teenage years, and then when I got older, I, I, started to understand that it wasn't normal and that it wasn't while I was inheriting so much good stuff, um, like my drive and my curiosity, I was also inheriting some of the bad stuff, like a paranoia and a rage that would bubble up an inability to control my emotions. And when I got older, I realized that I, 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 I had, I got to do what my dad didn't do. I got to confront it or I got to run away. And so I started to confront it when I got older and, and our relationship started to deteriorate. Your dad calls you in 2013. You relate this conversation, Catherine, that's what he calls you. Catherine, are you alone? You? Yes. I've decided to become a woman. A what? A woman. Pause. Are you serious? Serious as a heart attack. Dad, you know, can we talk? And this conversation with him has been on and off ever since. And you said this conversation, like virtually every conversation we had, is a roller coaster in the dark. I never knew whether I was headed for a drop. And that has to yeah. inform your your worldview as a human being and how you cover the news. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a, it was a tough conversation. Um, and not because I wasn't supportive, just because I, I wasn't expecting it. I didn't have the language for it. We didn't, you know, it was a different time. Um, it was before Orange is the New Black became a thing and, um, Laverne Cox was a household name. Um, Caitlyn Jenner hadn't announced the transition yet. It just wasn't a part of the national dialogue. So I, I didn't have I didn't have the the vocabulary for it. I didn't really know what questions to ask. Um, but beyond that, I mean, that's stuff you could figure out, you know, can I call you dad? Yes, you can call me dad. I'm, I'm your dad. Um, what's your new name? All that stuff. It's stuff you can figure out. That's not, that's not the hard part. The hard part for us was the wrestling with what to do with all of the stuff that Bob Tur did. And whether that carries on to Zoe Tur. And my dad was feeling like, no, it doesn't. It just, it dies. It's over. And I get a clean slate. And I was feeling like, well, I don't, I'm not so sure that because just because you're transitioning that you yourself, the person on the inside is entirely changing. And I need to reckon with some of the the old stuff to, to go forward. Right. He says to you, Bob Tur is dead. And you say, it's a hard thing for a kid to hear. You know, your dad is dead, basically. Right. And 
I am now off the hook, as you said, clean slate. All of the abuse, physical and mental, is wiped clean, and let's get a do-over. And yeah. that was hard. That was really hard. It was really hard. And, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations after that and tried to, to make things better, but every conversation just felt like you were walking on a knife's edge. And it, it got to a point later on where... Uh, she started to lash out at me publicly and I felt like I was, I just had to hide and I just would run and run and run. I got farther and farther away. I moved to London. Um, and I, I just didn't want to deal with it. And I, I found myself, I would have kept running if I could, but I, that, that, that ugly inheritance was following me. And I got, I came back here. I covered Donald Trump. I, you know, I withstood, um, the campaign and the candidate and, uh, I got married. I started to have kids. Life got for me personally got good, but I was still, there was still something in me that was just a little angry and weird. And, and it wouldn't come out all the time, very, very occasionally, but I found myself one Thanksgiving throwing a potato at my husband's head because I got angry about dishes. That's like, that's crazy. And I, I just thought, God, you, you can't keep, this was during the pandemic. You can't keep doing this. Like, this is not okay. You got to figure out what you've been running from. And in fact, rough draft, as one reads it closely, is a very cathartic read. It is an effort on your part to understand all this and put vocabulary to it yeah. so you can process it better. Yeah, you know, it's, it's that, and, you know, it, it does. And I, I don't want to describe the book as just a big, heavy tome that you, you know, you have a tough time getting through. Um, there are, there are a lot of really fun, light moments in the descriptions of, of my parents' career in the early days. Like it is, it is a really fun ride. And I go back and I read it and I have such fun memories and I can't get enough of it. I want to know more. And then also, you know, it talks about my career and the state of, of media and, you know, there's, there's more, it's, that is the foundation that will inform the current world we live in or that I am living in. Exactly. And I didn't mean to say that this was a heavy. Oh, no, 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 I know. I know. I just, but I think that my, I start to sound like, oh, it's just very, very heavy. Because I mean, there's parts of it where it is, and it's it's scary to put out there in the world because it is very honest. But um, there are fun there are fun moments. There will mo- there are moments that make you laugh. There are indeed, and it's a wonderful read. So let's pivot a little because the book has sort of two parts in a way, which is what we've just been talking about: who is Katie Turr? Who is her mom? Who is her dad? As a he, as a she the mercurial nature of that relationship. But then there's Katie Turr, kid reporter, who goes <laughs> off to New York and gets a job with a local TV station, uh, WPIX in, in New York. And then you were a, a weather uh, chaser, weather channel. So tell us a little bit about your early career. Michael, the news business is fun. I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I didn't. I didn't end up being a lawyer, and while it might have been more stable, I am so happy that I became a journalist because I have, I have traveled the world and I have seen some incredible stuff. I've made some dumb mistakes that have been funny looking back, and I've had 
um, interesting interactions, let's put it that way. But uh, I started off my career at a, at a place called News 12 Bronx in Brooklyn. I focused on Brooklyn. The tagline was as local as local news gets. And my introduction to the news business was a news director who looked at me and, and said some version of your boobs are too big for your clothes. <laughs> and oh, by the way, you need to cut your hair and cut it like cut it like these girls. And oh, you can't be Katie. You have to be Catherine. It was just this just wild, like, oh, my God, I can't be who I am. I've got to be this this robotic version of a news reporter. Um, I listened for a little while. Then I said, no, I'm I'm not a Catherine. I'm a Katie and my hair is going to grow out and screw you. I'll, I'll wear the clothes I want to wear. Um, but I, it, you know, I start there and I go to WPIX and I, the Lehman Brothers, uh, fall apart and the recession hits and I go to the weather channel to meet a one man band chasing tornadoes. I say something that almost, that, that should live in infamy on the internet, but does not because we were just on the cusp of everything living on the internet forever. So thank God I just avoided that part, that embarrassment early on in my career. Um, and and then I, you know, I, I stumble my way or I claw my way into local news here in New York and the network. Um, and I and I just think that journalism is is one of those jobs that um, if you, there's no better way to be a young person than to be a journalist because you get to learn so much. It's interesting. I've interviewed a whole batch of journalists, as one might expect in this podcast. And to a person, they all say it's really hard to be a good journalist if you haven't started in local news. Yes. That that's, I think that's right. That teaches you how to be a journalist. And I think you're a fantastic journalist. And I like watching you on air because you know how to ask questions. You know how to listen and you know how to ask questions. And that's a learned skill. And I think you learn it best at the local level. I think it takes years to really learn it. And you think when you're young, you think you know everything. And then you get older and you realize you didn't know anything at all. <laughs> um, but it takes years to, I think, just consume the amount of information you need to ask an informed question. To, and to get, live the, get the life experiences you need to be empathetic. I'm not saying you can't be empathetic as a kid, but to really fully understand what someone else might be going through and then to ask the right question about it. Um, my husband will disagree with this because he went, came up through news writing, magazine writing, long form writing. And he thinks that that was the key to becoming a really good journalist. And I say, no, you should go in local news. If you're going to be a TV journalist, at least local news will season you quick. Um, but yeah, you know, local we make fun of it um, because it's easy to make, it can be easy to make fun of, but it's essential. And no, you don't, no one knows a city like a, a local news reporter and no one knows how to, to report on what, what matters to people in a city like a local news reporter. I think that's right. And you say of this, and I think you're right. And your husband has got something still to learn. You you got a lot to teach him uh, that being a good live reporter is learning to be yourself, learning who you are to be real. And I think part of the problem with many journalists on air today is that I'm not sure that they know who they are. And I don't think they are as real as you have been able to be. And I think it's an accomplishment. Being authentic is the most important thing you can be because people don't trust journalists. 
And if you are robotic and you are, um, you don't seem like you understand what you're talking, what you're reading or what you're, the story that you're doing, or if you're just loosely connected to it, then, then I think people will look at you and wonder, do you really care? And, and being yourself and having them see you warts and all, I think is a good thing. Understanding where you came from. Exactly. And you add to it, my favorite thing, which is that you have to also have a sense of humor. I think so. Because why? I mean, life is boring without a sense of humor. Right. It's hard. Exactly. (laughs) What's What's the Woody Allen line? He says, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. Exactly. It's, it's, it's along the lines of his, uh, the, uh, the food is terrible and the portions are small, too small. Exactly. On the serious side of being a journalist, though, you wrote that journalism is supposed to be about gathering a common set of facts for a sprawling country and that this dynamic in the pandemic and from 2016 forward mostly had broken down and you wanted to understand why. You said it worried you that the truth did not seem to matter, that facts were worthless, the lies were winning, and even worse, I worried that journalists might be making it worse, including me. So yeah. Can you, that's, a very, that's a very important object lesson in, in this book. So can we talk through that some? Of course. I mean, Michael, I, this is actually something that, you, that I think you should chime in on. How do you feel about the way we covered the Mueller report and cable on, on the news? So let me say this. You have a section in the book which asked the question, teammate or journalist? And I thought that part of the coverage was too much teammate, not enough journalist. And I felt that was particularly true among legal analysts who I think were cheerleaders for Mueller rather than objective legal analysts of what was going on. And I think that's a big I, problem. I think you're exactly right. And that was my big problem with the coverage. It, it could feel like I would book a lawyer and we have some incredible lawyers on our team. So I'm not speaking for all of them, but sometimes I would book a lawyer and they'd come on and they might've started out just giving straight up legal analysis. And then somewhere along the lines, they'd start veering into getting political and turning their legal analysis kind of got shaded by their personal opinion. And I I think it was not great for the audience. Uh, And I think it primed some people to believe that there was a assured outcome when there wasn't. And so, and it also gave a lot of fodder to people who, um, you know, wanted the outcome to be different <laughs> and allowed people to tear down the news to say that, that, you know, these shows are biased. They're inherently biased. I gave an opening for that. And I, I think it's a problem. And and I wish that, I, I wish we could go back. I wish I could do an experiment where we go back and we took Mueller out of the news entirely and didn't cover it at all until there was, you know, there was actual news from Mueller's team and that was indictments or um, the, the final report. I think just the, the continuing coverage of it 
one in one sense primed the audience and in the second sense kind of numbed a lot of people to what the outcome ultimately was. I think that's right. I think that I would yell at the TV sometimes saying, you should be, to a legal analyst, you should be a political analyst because there's an expression that I learned in law school, which was wishing doesn't make it so. The law is what the law is. You can wish for something different, but that's just wishful thinking. I mean, Donald Trump was wishing the election was different, but (laughs) he couldn't argue it in court. And Katie, it'll be presenting no fraud. Oh, that's right. And it'll be very interesting to see how the January 6th events are covered, whether or not we, if you will, or journalism falls back into the trap of teammate instead of journalist. And I, I, I agree. I'm very fearful that you said you wrote that the news should make you uncomfortable. If everything you read or watch gives you comfort, you're doing it wrong. And I think that there's an important lesson in that. I agree. I mean, if you want to just be told that everything that you believe is right, there are places to go to, to, to find that. And that's, that's the problem. People just go where they're comforted. They're told that their beliefs are all the correct ones that they're, you know, in some cases there is an other that is responsible for all their problems. Or if this one thing happened, then everything would be fine. Um, and in reality, you know, there are shades of gray and not everything is so easily good or bad, you know, good or evil. Um, it, everything is more complicated than it is on, on, on first glance. And Thank when you, you are, when you are a news person, journalist, you, I, I want to explore the nuance. I want to explore what makes it complicated, what makes it hairy, what makes it a decision, not a sure decision. And I, I'd like to have the runway to do that um, without feeling like, you know, if I, if I don't comfort somebody, then they're going to try to take me down on Twitter and say that I should lose my job. That's right. Every, everyone should read the coddling of the American mind. It's oh yeah, coddling of the audience, if you will, this be the teammate, be the coddler, I think is very destructive. Along the same line, you were on the Colbert show and you made a very important point. And you said that journalists have to separate the truly momentous stuff from the merely dramatic Stuff You said that while admittedly it's a fine line to draw, responsible journalists have to draw it. You can't be breathless about everything. No. And there was a point during the the presidency where people were breathless about everything from a tweet and a, and a typo to, um, to the way he would walk downstairs. <laughs> it, it was just a lot. It was too much. And it, and it gave the perception that, Journalists were were trying to take him down for every little thing that he did and that there was no good that could happen. There was no generosity. Um, and I don't think that was a good, I think when you're screaming all the time, no one hears you. Right. When, the, when you, when you scream all the time and then you start screaming about something that matters, no one's going to hear it. Right. If everything is breaking news, which is not a criticism of any network, but if everything is breaking news, if everything is momentous, you cannot separate the truly momentous from, from. I agree. And you know, the, the breaking news banner, you talk 
talked to a lot of journalists and you know you'll get an earful about the the overuse of the breaking news banner yeah yeah well everything everything is breaking but doesn't make it important i know exactly maybe it's developing maybe we're continuing the coverage Let's, let's let's hope so. I want to talk just, I know we're going to have to stop soon. I don't want to stop. I want to keep talking forever with you. But as a reporter, you covered some important stuff, really important stuff. The Boston Marathon bombing, Malaysia Airlines 370, the 2016 Trump campaign. And then you pivoted and you became an anchor. So can you talk a little bit about being a reporter and then being, I loved being a reporter. I, 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 and I still am a reporter, but I loved being a field reporter um, because you got to go and, and experience new places and meet new people and try to understand um, different events, different uh, cultures, uh, different perspectives. Um, but the thing about being a, being a reporter is that you only have to know one thing at a time. You got to be an expert in one thing at a time. And when I became an anchor, I thought there was a part of me that thought, well, it's going to be a lot easier because I'll have, I'll be able to form my thoughts. I'll have a teleprompter to hold on to if I need to. Um, I'm not going to be responsible for getting deep into every subject because there, there are reporters that are deep into every subject. And then I started anchoring and I realized, oh, no, 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 I have got to now be an expert in everything. And there was a moment where I, I, um, had a misstep with a lawmaker who was talking about something that um, an interaction Obama had with um, uh, the leader of Russia at the time, Medvedev. And I didn't know about it. I didn't, I, I, it was something that I had missed in the years previous. And I looked like an idiot because I said to the lawmaker, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I looked like an idiot. And I realized then and there that I have to, I really have got to be on top of everything that is happening now, everything that might happen in the future. And I've also got to study up, if I'm going to do politics, I've got to study up on everything that has happened up until now so that I'm not in a position again of being caught flat-footed. It's hard. It's really hard. I interviewed David Gergen, who has a wonderful book on leadership, and he was talking about what it takes to be a leader. And I thought it was also true about what it takes to be a journalist. And he said that you need to know your history. You have to have a sense of humor and you have to live a balanced life. And if you, and if you can't have those three things, you can't be good at being a leader or I think being a, a journalist. Balanced life, uh, Michael, that is the, um, that's the hardest thing to find a balanced life. That's tough. That's, it's, it is sort of the brass ring, but I, I think that, I mean, you said, early on in the book that once you became a mom and you had Teddy and Eloise, that you looked at the world differently. You wanted to make sure that the world was going to be protected for them. And I think that's the life balance that Gergen is talking about. When you have that perspective, again, it informs the way you cover things, you ask questions, you interact with people, whether you're aggressive or empathetic or sad or happy. I think it matters. I think so too. And I think, again, all the accumulation of life experiences only make you a better journalist, a more informed questioner, um, a more empathetic listener. And, you know, if you have kids, that's one way to extend your emotional nerve endings. Um, but this job gets a lot harder. 
It's yeah. a, lot, a lot harder when you when you suddenly have people that you care for and deeply like children and um you get worried about them and you think of you think of the future that that is in store for them and you realize oh 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 I'm the one responsible for helping to shape that future. It's scary. Exactly. It's tough stuff. Yeah. Well, my wife and I were both federal prosecutors and my wife was a lawyer uh, until we both retired quite recently and and we were reflecting on raising our children. And we said, it was really good that we read Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day to them (laughs) and The Paper Bag Princess, two books that helped shape, I think, our effort to let them see that the world is not always peaches and cream. I'll have to get that. I I read, um, I read all, all the places we go to Teddy quite a lot. And I I don't, I didn't remember reading as a kid or even as a, a young adult and reading it as a mom to him. I found weirdly, cause it was the middle of the pandemic. And again, I found that it was helping me. It was helping give me uh, uh, guidance and advice for how to withstand the slings and arrows just of life. And, and it's a good example of, um, I think just a good example of how to, how to, the expectations you need to set for the world because there will be good moments and there will be bad moments. And all you got to do is pick yourself up and keep on going, survive. Yeah. I think <laughs> Eloise is going to love the paper bag princess. I'm going to get it for her. Thank you, Michael, for that suggestion. So Katie Turt, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish we had more time. Maybe we can do part two sometime. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to thank you for, I, I think, in your newscast, on your news hour, what you've done so well is to avoid being an opinionist, because I don't think the opinionists are actually journalists, and that you've stuck to being a journalist, asking important questions and making people give true answers. Thank you very much. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to hold on to that because I, I value it too. The book is Rough Draft. It is a very enjoyable read. There are parts that will make you smile and parts that will tear you up. And I'm very grateful for you joining us today. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me on and for enjoying the book. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.